Good morning, church. My name is the Reverend Andy Maddock, and I'm lead pastor here at Valencia United Methodist Church, and it is a blessing and an honor to stand before you. And it is a breath of fresh air after three weeks from December 18th, the last time we had this kind of quote-unquote normal pattern of our worship life together, to be back in this place, to have our band, and to know that we've made it through not just Christmas Eve, but Christmas Day and New Year's Day with new patterns in life, and to get back on track to do our common work together. We are in a new series, and it felt important to me uh, and to Pastor Camille uh, to unpack the seven things that we know to be true as a church because they were a part of our call here. They were a part of a witness of who we were. They were a part of the voice of this church. Uh, and I decided I, I wanted to just get fancy, so I chose a Latin word, credimus, uh, which means we believe. The, the root of it is the first four letters, C-R-E-D, creed, uh, or cred as it would be in that case. Uh, credo means I believe. It is a word that we use uh, uh, in the English language in a variety of ways, something like creed, like the Apostles' Creed that we use. It is found in the word credentials. So that which we have, which demonstrates to the world who we really and legally are, credentials. So in some ways, our seven things we know to be true are our credentials as a church. That same word form appears in the word incredible, insofar as incredible means this cannot be believed. And so we are leaning into a pattern in this time where we want to talk about those seven things that we still hold to be true. So part of what we want to do with this series is unpack our vision of who we are as a church. It's on the wall in a number of places and now on the screen before you. Valencia United Methodist Church's lead team established these seven things to be the hope and the voice of our church. It doesn't replace the role of the body of Christ. It doesn't stand in place of the great commission of baptizing and making disciples. It doesn't take the place of the great commandment of loving God and neighbor as yourself. It does not take the place of the Beatitudes and those who are blessed in God's purpose and witness. But the seven things we know to be true serve as the credentials of what makes this church unique. It's our voice. It's our hope. It's our opportunity. It's the formative vision of what God has done here and what God is doing in our midst moving forward into the coming year. The affirmations are intended to be inclusive, invitational, challenging, and to help create within us a sense of spirit and identity as the people of God here at this corner. You see the seven before you now. All means all. Everybody has stuff, and that's okay. Your story is important. Families come in all shapes and sizes. God's love changes everything. The Bible has a message for us today, and we are here for good. Well, this morning is a handoff from our Advent series. We're going to continue the theme of story. If you're new here, we did the stories of Christmas throughout an extended Advent and talked about how God was telling the Christmas story in and through us. And so today we want to talk about your story being important, that this is a part of how we understand ourselves. Each one of these seven things is, is scripture-led and spirit-inspired, prayed over and longed for a sense of what we are doing here and who God is equipping us to be. And so if we start with an affirmation that your story is important, what do we mean? So let's talk about what Scripture says about God knowing your story. And here's a simple confession. God knows your story. And if you turn to the Psalms, particularly Psalm 139, here's 
the word of God for the people of God that we will hear today. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my coming in, my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Oh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And so I ask, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, in Sheol, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become as darkness around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for the darkness is as light to you. Why? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame, O God, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book, O God, even before even one of them came into being. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, absolutely. This is a God who knows your story, who's a part of shaping you in the way that you are. Now, this is obviously not a biological text. I don't know that I was formed in the secret dark places deep down in the earth. I know a bit more physiology than that, a bit more of the biology of where I come from. But it is a spiritual affirmation about the work of God. And I feel it in such a deep way that when I do memorial services and funeral services, one of the affirmations I make, regardless of the age of the person that we have lost, regardless of the life that they have led, is that the same God who hears your birthing cry, who is with you in the high moments and low moments of your story, your joys and your triumphs, your successes and your failures, is the same one who receives your final breath and steps with you into eternity. There's never a moment where a God who knows your story is absent from you. Now, you might have the perception of that, but God is never going to leave you alone. And so this psalm text is one that I draw strength from, and maybe you do as well. God knows my story. But when I say it that way, I begin to understand why the psalmist describes it as fearful. Because if God knows my story, God knows my successes and the words I'm going to say and all of those things, but God also knows my unspoken thoughts, my deep self-criticisms, my inner saboteur, my judgmentalism towards self and towards others. If God knows me this fully and is present with all the steps of my journey, then I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that fear is rooted in the idea that I look at myself 
and say a God that knows me fully can't then possibly love me because I'm not worth it. I've blown it too many times. And the psalmist says, where can I go to flee from your spirit? Height, depth, east, west, dark, light. God's love and God's presence is inescapable. Your story is important because God knows you. And then here's the follow-up truth. God knows your story in all of those ways and loves you anyway. That's tough to buy in for some of us. To know that a God that knows us fully still loves us completely and deeply. Hear the confession from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's a theological and metaphorical image of who Christ is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. God knows your story and loves you anyway. God knows the struggle. God knows the temptations. God knows the burden of your journey and the things that you have faced. And the confession of Hebrews is that God in Christ, knowing those parts of your story, can somehow redeem you from them because while the struggle is known, the outcome is different. God has a unique capacity in the incarnation of Jesus Christ to have known our story and our struggles and yet not be captured by them. Now that unique capacity piece is important because it's 2023. All of our calendars have changed. Some of us have made great resolutions and plans for how we are going to live this next year. One of mine was to eat better, and then Kate Stradling brought me handmade tamales from Baja, Mexico. One of mine was to get out and ride my bike more, and then it rained for like 19 days this week. <laughs> I've already screwed up. I'm incapable of that perfection. Does that mean I'm quitting on those goals? No, because God has a unique capacity to redeem my experience and yours. New year, new you. And in terms of your life and faith, it is okay for you to be able to say, my new year's goal is to be more like Jesus. That's fine. But if your New Year's resolution is in 2023, I'm going to be Jesus, I've got a bad word for you. It's just not going to happen. The work of Christ is unique. He is the one who comes into our experience and not only redeems our story and our life, but he is the one who helps in its transformation. He alone does like that. Be more like Jesus, yes. Be Jesus, no. So as we move into figuring out who we are, one of the places that we can start at the beginning of the year, if our story is important, is to become deeper masters of our own story. And I don't mean that you ought to then sit down and write an autobiography, although some of you might. Some of you might have already captured some of the pieces of your story and tried to write down some of the experiences of who you are. And that's a powerful piece, particularly as you age and where you might want to pass that down to children and grandchildren. What it was like for you to grow up given how quickly the world around us has changed. I'm only 45, but it blows my kid's mind that I grew up in a world where 
we didn't have the internet, where we didn't get to use graphing calculators on the SAT, where our phones had cords on them. Times change. And our story is a part of adapting to that tremendous change in our story. So I want you to imagine your story as you hold it, as a book laid out before you. And everything on the left is your past. The crease in the middle is this present moment at 1102 on the 8th of January. And everything else to the right in your story's book is what is left to be written. All of the days, all of the tomorrows God will grant you is still to come. If your life was that book, what has your role in it been? Are you the narrator of your story? Let me tell you what the narrator does. The narrator doesn't always engage in the plot, but the narrator always has something to say about it. I've known some narrators in my life who aren't willing to risk when it comes to love or to life or to church or to generosity, but they always have an opinion to share on what they see and what is going on. It may be that your experience of life is such that it is passing before your eyes, and the best you can do is to say, this is what I know to be true. This is what's going on to be observational about your story. Are you the hero of your story? And I don't just mean, are you the main character? I mean, literally, when you go to the grocery store, does the spot closest to the front door open by the very will and grace of God for you? Are you the hero of your story? Are you the villain of your story? Does everything that seems to have happened seem to run counter to your goals and aspirations? Does it seem like the world is stacked up against you? Another great word for that, one of my favorite words when it comes to English literature is foil. Are you the foil of your story? Do you remember that word from high school English? The foil is not the hero, not the protagonist, not the main character but the person whose character, characteristics and identity seem to be the direct opposite of the main character, such that you learn more about the main character by studying the foil and examining what they are or are not. You might say, whose story is that? Mine through high school. Mine through high school. Because from fifth grade to 12th grade, there was a kid by the name of Casey Cornwell who was just a little bit better than me at everything I wanted to do. He played better volleyball. He was a better mathematician. He was a better speller in the fifth grade. Everything I did, I seemed to be losing just a little bit to him to the point where I came home at one point and told my mother in the midst of my young angst, I am never doing anything that Casey does ever again. If you'd asked me then, Casey was the hero of the story and I was his foil. Have you felt like the foil in any of the pages of your book? Do you feel like an NPC? I asked this question at 9 o'clock, and I asked for a raise of hand. How many of you know what an NPC is? Raise your hand if you know what an NPC is. All right, an NPC is a gaming term. It stands for non-playable character. Anything in the game that you are experiencing, being it something told aloud like Dungeons & Dragons or a video game that you play, if you are not in control of it and it just exists in that universe, it's a non-playable character. Their experience is scripted. They do the same thing again and again and again, regardless of the players that run into them. Their job is simple, 
to give the hero a sword or a healing potion, to point the way to the next quest and what to do. It's entirely possible for you to feel like an NPC in your own story, that you have no control, you have no authority, you have no autonomy, that the world just seems to happen to you. There are people that I have counseled as a pastor in my office who have come to me and said, you need to know all of the pages that have come before, all of the struggles, all of the problems, all the bad things that have ever happened to me, if you're going to know who I am right now. And oftentimes that's intended to create a sense of empathy and to say, if you know just how much has happened to me, you'll want to help me in some way. Are you an NPC in your own story? Let me ask one more challenge. Are you the editor of your story? Do you look back at those past pages with a sense of hope and optimism and to say there are still lessons to be learned, gems to be mined, opportunities to be living out from where I've been? When I do pastoral counseling, particularly with the NPC type person, I'll do this same analogy. Picture your life as a book. And I'll ask them to describe what they think is going to happen on the next page. Because we're all still writing our stories. The what comes next. And in some ways, it's like those books from my youth where it's a choose-your-own-adventure and you can go back and forth and you might want to hold your finger in a page and imagine if I make this choice, am I going to find out that the story's over because I fell in a pit and that I would make the different choice? But that next blank page of your story, you have control over. And there are so many people who say, Pastor, that's just not true. You have no idea. I can't control what happens next in my story. And then I say, that's fine. What you control is how you write that next part of your story. Because if the next part of your story starts with the word, the, we all know there's a difference between a light hand with cursive writing the and somebody in the midst of their angst whose story is written like this, T-H-E. You can control your response to the situation, even if you can't yet control what comes next. Now, this all started with the idea that God has a unique capacity for redemption. God is the editor and partner to us in our stories. God can even use the pages of what's come before and use them in a redemptive way such that where you've been need not be where you're headed, but it can be a part of your testimony and witness to what God is doing for you and in you in the present. The very next page represents an opportunity for your important story to reflect what God is doing in your story. The affirmation, the credential that we have as a church is to say to each of you sitting before me that your story is important. Who you are right now, where you've been, what you've done, the things you're proud of and those things that you are not, the whole of you that makes you you is a value. Your story is important to God. We already talked about how much God cares for you in the inescapable quality of God's love. Your story matters to your pastors. 
It has been the gift of the last six months and will be the gift of the next 37 years for Camille and myself to hear your stories and to come to know you, to know where you've been and where you're headed, to know where our paths align because we have family in common, places in common, education in common, family rearing in common, whatever it might be. But to also be able to tell the stories that say, Pastor, this is where I am radically different from you. Because your story is important to me. Beyond that, your story is important to this church. Valencia UMC is what it is, is who it is because of the stories of everybody who's come before in the last 50 years and those who gather in this place and call it their church home now. Because the body of Christ, the church, is always about telling a corporate story that works through the world in a transformational way. We are a part of living together the story of what God is doing. Yes, we have a history. Yes, we have this present moment. But we look with a sense of vision and hope to what God will do with our credentials in the future. Who we can be, who we ought to be, and what we will do. Let me tell you why I'm proud to be the pastor of this church. I'd never experienced anything in 22 years of ministry like we did in the miracle offering. Every other church I've been a part of, we needed Christmas Eve to help us balance a budget. And our budget isn't perfect, and we probably could have used all that money for ourselves anyway, but, says the Lord, in the history of this church, Y'all took seriously a, a teaching of a Methodist pastor by the name of Mike Slaughter who wrote a book called Christmas is Not Your Birthday that said the holiday season, Christmas in particular, is an opportunity to lift your eyes and to see the transformational work of God in the world. Do not be generous in Christmas because it is expected. Be generous in Christmas because it is the expectational and exceptional gift of your response to God's purpose. And so this church came together over the last month and lifted up for our ministry partners, these five ministries, more than $33,000 of gifts to help their work. And so Bridge to Home, Project Chacocene, Family Promise, Terza, and Hands to Hearts will benefit and tell their story better in the world because of the generosity of y'all. That is a powerful witness to how the importance of our common story is stirring the holy waters of the world that surrounds us. Because your story ought to always change the world. One last bit before we go. It is important for me to name this. I have said about 137 times this morning, your story is important. And by how our language works, you all hear that as, my story is important. And the creedal confession of the work of our congregation is about honoring the importance of each one of your stories. But here's how that work gets magnified. When you begin to see the world beyond yourselves, the way this church does and the way that God does, because it's not just a matter of, of honoring and mastering the sense that my story is important. It's about learning to see with clear focus how the world out there has an important story. 
And I don't want to create a dynamic of us versus them, but linguistically, this is how it works. We need to be able to look out at the world to the people who are radically different from us in creed, in character, in race, religion, orientation, whatever the case might be, and to learn the confession just as surely as we've claimed it this morning that my story is important, to say their story is important to God too. That's the challenge for us in the new year. Can we see with the eyes of Christ? Can we take our credentials and our confession and not just learn to say my story is important to God, but to live in such a way to find the least and the lost and the most unlikely and help them to hear the story, your story is important to God. Would you join me in a moment of prayer?